from the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. This past April, French bishops voted to open the sainthood cause of the 20th century Jesuit theologian Henri de Lubac. If you had a time machine and went back to the 1950s and told Father de Lubac this news, he probably would not have believed you. Because in those years, the church was so nervous about de Lubac's scholarship that he was prevented from teaching theology and his books were removed from Jesuit libraries. De Lubac experienced a rehabilitation in his own lifetime, and he was even named a cardinal by Pope John Paul II in 1983. I've heard de Lubac's name a number of times over the years, both for this theological controversy, and even more importantly for the immense impact his work had on the Second Vatican Council and the church today. But I knew pretty much nothing about him, so I invited the Reverend Dr. Jordan Hilbert on the show to get me up to speed. Jordan Hilbert is an Anglican priest, a theologian, and a tutor at St. Padarn's Institute in Cardiff, Wales. He was born and raised in the United States and moved to Scotland in 2011 to pursue a PhD in theology at the University of St. Andrews. His research interests include systematic theology, modern Christian thought, and the theology specifically of Henri de Lubac, whose work he has edited and authored several books on. Jordan's most recent book is called Henri de Lubac and the Drama of Human Existence. I asked Jordan to get all of us non-experts acquainted with de Lubac's life and work, and I think he did an incredible job in this show. I learned so much from Jordan just sitting back and listening. He's so clearly, intimately familiar with this great Jesuit thinker. I also asked Jordan about his own vocation story, going from the U.S. to Scotland to Wales, and what his experience has been like as an Anglican priest studying a modern Roman Catholic theologian. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Reverend Dr. Jordan Hilbert, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? Yeah, it's great to be with you. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm I'm great. I'm excited to ask you about a uh, theologian I wish I knew more about, but I'm excited to learn about from you today. The Jesuit theologian, Henri de Lubac, a French Jesuit theologian. And we're talking about him today because the Catholic Church has recently announced that the cause for his sainthood is open, which I imagine during about the decade in his life in which he was removed from teaching and kind of silenced by the church, he would be kind of tickled to hear that, mm. though he did experience a... Uh, uh, a you know reconciliation with the church or a return uh, to you know uh, right, normal status or welcomed status sure. <laughs> later in his life. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want to. So you are again. You've written about him. You studied him. Uh, this is a big part of your academic life, kind of looking at his work uh, from different angles. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we could start by just like what about Dulubac? captured your imagination and made you want to like write a dissertation and books and get mm. just really dive into his work. What about him grabbed you? Yeah, so I first encountered de Lubac uh, in my early 20s when I was in seminary. Um, and I think the thing that first struck me about de Lubac was the kind of world that de Lubac opened up to me. So if anyone's uh, read any de Lubac, if, if you've only glanced at a page of de Lubac, uh, you'll notice uh, endless footnotes, endnotes, quotations, uh, pointing to patristic literature, the church fathers, great medieval thinkers. Um, so de Lubac is, uh, he's an excellent tour guide to this great tradition. 
and, and in fact, Delubac himself mm. uh, was never really one who sought to to kind of create uh, his own school of thought. I mean, he was very much uh, someone leading his readers uh, into that great breadth of tradition. Uh, and so, uh, I was uh, glad to be led by Delubac into that literature. Um, uh, but as well as keeping an eye on the past and, and being deeply conversant with the past, uh, de Lubac is constantly engaged with the, the issues, the thinkers, the debates of his day. Um, uh, and so to read de Lubac is not just to come to a better understanding of Augustine or Origen or Aquinas. Um, it, it's also to wrestle with uh, modern atheism. It's um, uh, to take up uh, the uh, debates following the Second Vatican Council and seek to, uh, uh, to, to stand in faithfulness with the tradition that came before it. So I think de Lubac for me was uh, a thinker who led me back into the great tradition uh, and a thinker who kind of sharpened my own engagement with the contemporary world world no i i love that and i i well let's i want to get into that uh later especially that kind of looking back mm. and looking ahead and bringing those together but first maybe for folks again who are not as familiar with him could you give us like the quick kind of biographical sketch tell us a little bit about him where he's from uh, some big moments in his his life yeah sure uh so as you said de Lubac was a a french jesuit theologian uh, he was born in 1896 and died in 1991. So a long life, a life that spanned really the entire 20th century. Um, uh, de Lubac was raised in a, in a devout Catholic family in the north of France. Um, so his eldest sister entered the Carmelite order uh, shortly before he became a novice uh, in the Society of Jesus. Um, uh, he became a novice uh, in 1913. Um, but his studies were soon interrupted by uh, the outbreak of the First World War. So like so many in his generation, um, de Lubac was, um, uh, he was an infantry soldier uh, in the First World War. Uh, and kind of two important things happened to de Lubac uh, during that experience. Uh, one is he suffers a, a terrible head injury, uh, sort of shrapnel wound uh, to the head uh, and suffers for, mm. for decades from dizziness and earaches and all the rest. Um, but I think more importantly for his intellectual journey is um, de Lubac became close friends with an unbelieving uh, primary school teacher. Uh, and, and so these two, de Lubac and this primary school teacher, would, would spend their evenings uh, kind of debating and discussing matters of philosophy and religion. Um, and I think what that did is it instilled in de Lubac um, a real heart for the unbeliever. Um, a real kind of apologetic edge to his theology. He's constantly doing theology um, in a way, not that, not just that's intelligible to the non-believer, but uh, persuasive and compelling. Um, uh, and it, it kind of involved de Lubac um, already from a young age in wrestling with um, trends in contemporary atheism as well, which is going to pop up throughout his work. Um, after uh, the First World War, uh, uh, Lubac studied mostly in England because at that time, um, uh, the Third Republic, the French government, um, was um, uh, a very kind of secular regime. The, the, the religious uh, were, were largely dispelled from France, and so uh, he had to do much of his training uh, outside of France. Um, uh, which again is going to reinforce de Lubac's interest in, in atheism, in apologetics, and, and all the rest. So de Lubac is uh, ordained in 1927, uh, soon becomes uh, a professor of fundamental theology in Lyon, in the south of France, um, in 1929. 
Um, and about a decade later, uh, so I'm skipping over lots here, but about a decade later, he publishes his first great book, um, Catholicism. Uh, and despite the title, it's not really a book about the Roman Catholic Church per se. Um, it's a book about the kind of social and historical dimensions of the Christian faith. So he's responding to those who criticize Christianity for being overly individualistic and overly escapist, as though all Christianity is, is about mm. my individual soul uh, getting to heaven after I die. Uh, and what de Lubac does in this book is he provides a, a reading of the Christian faith as, as the kind of story of um, uh, the disintegration of human relationships. So sin fractures not just our relation to God, but our relationship to one another. Mm. Uh, and so salvation is ultimately the restoration of fellowship, fellowship with God uh, and that horizontal fellowship, fellowship among human beings. Um, and, and Catholicism was very quickly uh, a massively influential text. Um, so uh, Joseph Ratzinger, um, uh, Benedict XVI, um, uh, refers back to that book as a, as, a, as a key milestone on his own theological development uh, and journey. And so de Lubac became very well known uh, after writing that text. Shortly after that text is published, um, uh, Europe becomes embroiled in war once again. Uh, and de Lubac finds himself at the center of um, uh, the kind of spiritual resistance in France uh, to the Nazi regime and Nazi ideology. Uh, so after the, the fall of Paris, uh, history buffs will probably be able to tell you far more than I here, um, but, but after the fall of, of Paris, where the northernmost uh, bit of France comes under uh, German occupation, uh, the south of France um, is basically uh, looked after by um, a kind of collaborationist regime with the, with the Nazi party, uh, so the Vichy regime. Um, and de Lubac became very concerned um, uh, with the church's relationship to the regime, um, but also the ideology coming out of this collaborationist regime. So for many in the Catholic Church in France, um, they saw this new collaborationist government as good news for the church. Um, because um, uh, uh, mm. in contradiction to the kind of secularist policies of the Third Republic, uh, the Vichy regime was kind of promising the church a new kind of uh, cultural prominence that it hadn't had in, in decades and decades. Um, and, and so de Lubac was mm. busy writing letters to his superiors about um, uh, his worry that the church was being instrumentalized here by kind of nationalist ends. Um, and he grows increasingly mm. worried uh, and concerned and indeed kind of distraught by the, the anti-Semitic policies that, that start trickling out through this government. Uh, so de Lubac, he co-authors this declaration um, that is um, uh, condemning these anti-Semitic policies. Uh, and de Lubac starts to speak um, kind of covertly and in, in, you know, in, in back rooms and all the rest about the dangers of Nazi ideology. Um, and uh, eventually those in a position of political leadership catch wind of this and de Lubac himself has to go into hiding. So he kind of escapes to Switzerland hmm. um, uh, uh, to avoid being uh, arrested for his, um, for his criticisms of, of the government at that time. And that brings us to the next kind of important chapter in de Lubac's life, which is while he's in Switzerland, as one does, he brings his notes with him, uh, his writing projects. 
Um, and he, he completes work on uh, what would become his most famous and controversial text, uh, Sur Naturel. Um, and uh, this book is, um, it's a book about the relationship between nature and grace. It's a book about how to interpret Thomas Aquinas. And uh, the kind of big picture argument of the book is that uh, human beings are ordered towards uh, the beatific vision. Uh, and so uh, we desire this, this beatific vision. So he draws on Augustine's, we are restless until we rest in God. Um, and so he calls into question a reading of Thomas Aquinas in which human beings have kind of two separate ends, a natural end and then an additional supernatural end. And we can discuss that a bit more as we go along. Um, but he, he writes this book, um, uh, publishes it uh, shortly after the war, uh, and this book lands Delubac in a great deal of hot water. Um, uh, now, I should say Delubac was already a person of some suspicion uh, by the kind of conservative neo-Thomist of his day. Um, and that's because a large part of Delubac's interest in his project was about um, uh, resourcement, a return to the sources. So a fresh reading of the church fathers, the patristic literature, uh, and ultimately a deeper engagement with the biblical text. And so according to his kind of, uh, the fear of his critics, the kind of conservative neo-Thomist, is that de Lubac was undermining kind of the uh, definitive scientific synthesis that we have in Thomas by returning to these earlier voices. And so he was kind of relativizing Thomas uh, and introducing um, uh, discord in the church's great tradition. Um, so uh, de Lubac uh, is under suspicion. He's kind of accused of relativism already um, by this point. Uh, and then when he publishes this book on nature and grace, he's critiqued for compromising the gratuity of grace. Because if God makes us for the beatific vision, if the only way we find our fulfillment is through grace, well then that would mean God would have to give us this grace in order for us to be fulfilled. And so uh, according to his critics then, uh, de Lubac was undermining grace, uh, the very gratuity of grace. Uh, so de Lubac's, uh, the superior uh, general of the Society of Jesus catches wind of this controversy and gets a bit spooked by it. Uh, and so long story short, for a host of reasons, um, de Lubac is removed from his teaching responsibilities in Lyon. Uh, he is forbidden to publish in the area of theology. Uh, and a number of his books are removed from Jesuit libraries. So uh, a big slap on the wrist here for de Lubac. Mm. Uh, and de Lubac throughout the 1950s is kind of a marginalized figure then. Um, uh, he can't publish in kind of constructive theology. He, he's no longer teaching in Lyon. Um, he, he's kind of on, on the blacklist for, for nearly a decade. And it's not until the very end of the 1950s where de Lubac's name is kind of cleared and he comes once more into favor uh, in the church. And there are a number of reasons for that, but the, the biggest is... Uh, uh, the accession of, of John the 23rd, Pope John the 23rd. Um, uh, so uh, Pope John uh, lets it known very quickly that he disagrees with um, uh, the kind of uh, reaction um, uh, of the superior general uh, to do Lubach's work. As a sign of goodwill, he, he contributes a great deal of money to um, a, a series of translations that de Lubac had co-edited, the Christian Sources series. 
Uh, and he names de Lubac as a theological expert at the Second Vatican Council. So here we go from uh, being kind of ostracized, blacklisted, forbidden from teaching, uh, to suddenly now on the front lines at the Second mm. Vatican Council, um, uh, contributing um, uh, to, to the work and the deliberations there. Uh, so de Lubac is... Um, um, influential on, on the, the conciliar text, so um, the, the kind of constitutions on, on Revelation and on the church in particular draw uh, greatly from de Lubac's thinking. But then de Lubac finds himself a bit at odds with the kind of what we would call the more kind of progressive ring, wing uh, of the Catholic Church. So no longer was it the neo-scholastics, the conservative Thomist who had all the authority, authority in the church. Uh, suddenly now you have these theologians arguing for the spirit of the council over and against the letter of the council, kind of emphasizing rupture over continuity. Um, uh, and so de Lubac devotes himself after the council to kind of uh, responding to these more kind of progressive readings of the council. And so he goes from being in the 1950s, a dangerous progressive, to kind of in the 1960s and 70s, mm. um, this uh, conservative court theologian uh, who's always in the pocket of the Pope. Um, that's, that's kind of the pendulum uh, mm. that uh, de Lubac experienced. Um, uh, de Lubac... Um, uh, goes on to have um, a, a massive influence on um, uh, what will be Benedict XVI. Um, uh, Pope Francis as well um, often speaks of de Lubac as uh, a key influence uh, in his thinking and his theology and ministry. Um, and by the end of his life, um, uh, de Lubac is made a, a cardinal, um, uh, kind of in the, in the final five years of his life. Uh, so a fascinating story, a story which kind of reflects the, uh, the debates within the Catholic Church in the 20th century, uh, but also a story deeply embedded in the historical realities uh, of that century. All right. Well, thank you. That's a super helpful lecture. I feel like we could just snip that out and put that somewhere and there's a good intro lecture to de Lubac. So uh, I appreciate you taking us on that journey. It also sounds like to me you have you have this right under your fingers in your mind and heart and ready to you spend a lot of time with him. I can tell that mm. much. Um, I, I want to I do want to get into um, some of his his thought as much as we can for me who I you know I'm interested but not an expert. So uh, maybe we could start uh, with the Second Vatican Council, just because we just mm. had a big anniversary of the uh, the calling of the council. It's still something we talk a lot about in Catholic settings, how we're receiving it. And so are there, can you, for this, for me and our non-theologian uh, audience, yeah. try to describe um, what about, yeah, what what was his influence in Vatican II? If we were to pick up, you know, Gaudium et Spes, if we were going to look at some of these, the big documents yeah. from Vatican II, where do we see his fingerprints uh, on those documents? Certainly. So I... Uh, part of de Lubac's emphasis or influence on the Second Vatican Council um, is his, his teaching on the nature of the church and on divine revelation, um, uh, both of which show up uh, throughout uh, the Second Vatican Council constitutions. Um, uh, so de Lubac argues in his book, uh, Catholicism, uh, that the church uh, is kind of fundamentally um, uh, the, the sacrament of Christ. This is how we ought to understand the church. So if Christ is the sacrament of God, 
uh, the church is a sacrament of Christ. She, she makes him present uh, and she continues his work in the world. Uh, and so that language, that vocabulary mm. of church as sacrament starts to do quite a bit of work um, in the Second Vatican Council. Um, but again, it's also an emphasis on the church that's not exclusively or, or even primarily focused on uh, hierarchy or the church's juridical power. What it's interested in is the church as an instrument of Christ's ongoing work. Um, and it's, it's the kind mm. of vocabulary that he is, he's picking up from, uh, again, these patristic sources, uh, but ultimately through a deeper engagement uh, with, this, with the scriptures. Uh, so you've got de Lubac's ecclesiology, his understanding of the church, uh, uh, kind of showing up uh, throughout uh, the Second Vatican Council documents. Um, and then also his understanding of, of divine revelation. So de Lubac was really nervous of accounts of divine revelation that made revelation kind of a deposit of timeless truths, uh, as though kind of God, you know, uh, dictates a letter to God's people, drops it on us and says, remember all these things and believe them. Um, and, and, and the reason he's mm. uncomfortable with that language um, is because revelation is first and foremost the personal revelation of God. Um, it is an encounter with God. It is um, a, a relationship with God. And so ultimately, revelation for de Lubac um, is, is the person and works of Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's not uh, timeless propositions, although the church bears witness to that revelation in its dogmatic utterances. Revelation is uh, uh, Jesus Christ. The truth is a person for de Lubac. Um, and so uh, de Lubac mm. then, he pushes against the kind of two-source theory of revelation where you have uh, scripture giving us some truths, tradition giving us other truths. And, and, and what he sees is actually scripture and tradition both flow out of and point back to that one source of revelation, which is um, uh, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Uh, and again, that's, uh, De Verbum is, is picking up on these, theme, these themes uh, and language throughout. So uh, you mentioned, again, going back to the patristics, those early church fathers, which to me, it seems like I can't believe that was, uh, that was scandalous mm. at the time, kind of skipping past Thomas to go back. To, oh, yeah, we should go back to our roots and, and spend time there. And I am curious, like, what are some of the... Um, what are who are some of it? You mentioned, I think, uh, well, Augustine and, and Origen, and and uh, what what was f about their thought or teaching or what they represented that grabbed him and that he kind of pulled and then brought into the, the his modern setting. If you could outline any of their sure. kind of key teachings that he was drawn to. Yeah, so I think, so de Lubac never writes a monograph on Augustine. Um, Augustine shows up everywhere in de Lubac, but he, he doesn't have a book on Augustine. Um, but I think, uh, I think the, the influence of Augustine on de Lubac is really felt in some of his work on, on nature and grace, on that, that sense in which uh, the human being is restless uh, until we rest in God. Uh, and so what Augustine gives de Lubac is a picture of human existence as kind of unintelligible to ourselves um, until we order ourselves towards God. So it's only in encountering God that we, by reflection, then start to understand who we are, uh, what our lives are for, uh, etc. So we understand ourselves in relationship uh, to God, our creator and our redeemer. Uh, so that is uh, the influence of Augustine kind of bubbling up all over the place for de Lubac. Uh, Origin is an interesting one. 
Um, and in fact, Delubac is um, not solely responsible, but kind of largely responsible for the sympathetic reading of origin uh, that has um, really developed over the 20th and 21st century. So origin was an incredibly controversial thing. Also been mm-hmm. rehabilitated. Absolutely, exactly. Right. Well, the two of them are kindred spirits, that, right? That's yeah. right. Uh, and, and Delubac was often drawn to those figures kind of on the margins of the church. Um, uh, Maurice Blondel, who mm. you know we, we don't need to go into, was another one, a, a figure at the end of the 19th, early 20th century that uh, de Lubac had a lot of time for, d- despite being very much on the margins uh, at the time. But I think what, what de Lubac mm. discovers in origin and what he admires in origin is, is a, a way of engaging scripture. Um, uh, so de Lubac devotes, he devotes a whole volume to origin, and then he devotes four volumes to this history of medieval exegesis. Uh, and in fact, he does all this in the 1950s when he's not meant to be writing on theology. So this is him saying, oh, no, I'm writing on history here. These are historical investigations, but, but clearly his motivations are deeply spiritual and theological. Uh, and what de Lubac picks up in origin uh, and throughout his writings on medieval exegesis is uh, really a Christocentric reading of scripture. Uh, that, that scripture, um, Christ is the fulfillment of scripture, that um, we interpret the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, um, through the lens of the person and works of Jesus Christ. And so meditating on scripture, praying over the text, um, engaging the text, is ultimately about drawing us closer to Christ himself and conforming us into Christ's likeness. Um, so de Lubac's writing on scripture is a writing about a whole spiritual practice, a, a way of engaging this text, not as an academic enterprise, um, but as a means of being drawn more closely uh, to Christ. Hmm. Um, so I, I want to go back now to, uh, to the, the World War II hmm. era his resistance to Nazism as I think like ways then of taking some of these things and then applying them to the modern world. As you said at the, at the beginning, looking back, then looking around, you know, seeing then bringing these things, these themes and applying them to the modern situation and his interest in apologetics yeah. and the, this kind of the rise of like atheistic humanism and then what he sees in Nazism reflected. So interesting to me that again, whereas it, it seems like the institutional church could be excited. Oh, there is this, this new regime that's going to like kind of let us return to some more prominence and more like a more public role. But he, I think very astutely clearly sees that um, things are, are not, right there and that the church is being used. Um, so again, for us now at this perspective, it seems so easy to think like, oh, of course you resist something like Nazism, but clearly was not the, you know, the leading voice, the only Catholic voice. And I'm interested, like, can you, beyond the kind of basic kind of human rights, this seems, you know, in Catholic social teaching, certainly like this is not something, you know, the anti-Semitic um tendencies is we can't abide that but like you write too i think really well about like what were his theological his the reason like the theology he was like rooting his resistance to nazism and what were some of those things that that he noticed some trends that he was resisting so in that spirit of apologetics saying like no like true christianity doesn't have space for this um so if you could go yeah into any more detail about like how he rooted his resistance i think that would be really interesting to hear about certainly um, so a number of the lectures that de Lubac delivered um, during the Second and throughout the Second World War were eventually collected and published as a book uh, called The Drama of Atheist Humanism. 
Um, so de Lubeck had to be careful at that time kind of not to name uh, Hitler or Nazi ideology um, explicitly for obvious reasons um, uh, under the kind of uh, the, the censorship of the day. Um, but de Lubeck's real worry is that um, the kind of ideology funding uh, kind of Hitler's project um, is uh, the ideology of atheist humanism. Uh, the, the kind of attempt to elevate humanity by um, uh, severing humanity's relationship to God, to transcendence. So it's the kind of Nietzschean revolt against God. You know, God must die that humanity might truly live. Uh, this is the kind of vigor mm. and vinegar uh, that de Lubeck sees uh, uh, coming out of Germany uh, at that time. Uh, and, and so... Uh, de Lubach's argument is basically in severing our relationship to transcendence, uh, we undermine uh, the very source of our dignity and freedom. Uh, that humanity is created in God's image, that uh, every human being has an innate uh, uh, dignity um, by virtue of their relation to God. Uh, and so to elevate humanity at the expense of God is ultimately to spell humanity's ruin. Um, and so uh, de Lubach's kind of argument throughout the drama of human existence um, is the kind of sad irony that uh, in seeking to elevate ourselves, we end up destroying ourselves. Uh, it's only by lowering ourselves, by kind of um, recognizing uh, our dependence on God, uh, that we are that we are elevated to our rightful dignity. Um, and so it's uh, it's the kind of appeal back to the um, uh, the teachings of, of Philippians two and elsewhere that actually our dignity comes through our dependence and it's in and through humility that we come to see our greatness. Hmm. And the way again he uses that in the responding to the signs of the times feels very Jesuit to me. And I am curious hmm. for you as a as a young scholar working now. It, where do you see de Lubeck as especially relevant? Like why, why read him today? Why study him today? What, what does he um, in particular, maybe for this moment, do you think uh, some of his, his work might offer us? I think de Lubeck's influence is felt in a number of different ways. And it's, it's kind of hard to put my finger on just one or two, because again, he wrote so broadly and was engaged in so many debates uh, and conversations. <laughs> I think one of the things I like about de Lubac is his understanding of the relationship between apologetics and theology. And this is one of the, the first things that really attracted me to de Lubac. Um, so his first lecture as a lecturer in Lyon uh, was about this relationship between apologetics and theology. And he's really concerned with the way these two disciplines relate uh, in the context in which he's uh, living and thinking and serving. Because at that time, these, these were seen as kind of radically distinct autonomous realms. So apologetics is all about kind of convincing people on purely kind of rational grounds um, uh, of the authority of scripture. So we might appeal to the miracles in scripture or the fulfilled prophecies, and, and we can convince people on those terms to take scripture seriously. Um, or it's the kind of rational demonstrations based on um, observations of the world around us, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, by reason alone, we can convince people to kind of uh, take God seriously or to take scripture seriously. And then once we've done that work, then we can tell them what God has said. And then comes the kind of theology, et cetera. Because de Lubac is convinced that uh, human existence is ultimately unintelligible um, uh, without looking to Christ because he's convinced that our hearts are restless until we rest in God. Um, 
de Lubac is convinced that theology kind of is its own and best form of apologetics. That is, the job of the church is not to speak incognito, kind of on a purely rational basis until we can get someone to the place of theology. Uh, the job of the church is to help people interpret themselves, their own lives, and the world around them in the light of Christ. So Christ is the most attractive thing about Christianity, according to de Lubac. Um, uh, therefore, the church's apologetic, the church's witness, is ultimately helping people to see how Christ uh, not just makes sense of their lives, uh, but Christ uh, elevates, perfects, brings their lives to that place of fulfillment. Um, so it's a deeply kind of Christocentric apologetic, and it's one that refuses this bifurcation of apologetics and theology. So de Lubac says kind of um, all theology ought to um, be motivated by apologetics, by making the gospel intelligible to the unbeliever. But similarly, all apologetics must end up in theology. It must speak about Christ um, and the way in which Christ illuminates the world. Um, uh, and then mm. uh, I think de Lubac's- so, curious. Oh yeah, go oh. on. Hmm. No, no, please keep going. Uh, I was just to say uh, another kind of key area of, of influence, um, uh, one that we tend to take for granted nowadays, but I think we ought not to lose sight of, are those kind of social dimensions of the Christian faith. Um, that um, uh, Christianity um, is ultimately about our, our reunification. Um, and this is going to inspire not just thinkers like Benedict XVI, but also uh, liberationist uh, projects of theology, that sense in which theology is about um, uh, restoring relations. And so um, anything that, that prevents um, that belonging to one another in God is something the church ought to take seriously and confront as we point towards uh, the reunification of all things in Christ. So maybe we could can wrap up here as you're talking about um, unity and that all might be one, which is today's gospel in the, the lectionary. Um, and your, yourself as a, an Anglican, uh, not Roman Catholic uh, priest, um, you could talk a little bit about your own journey and, and how you see you, this uh, ecumenical uh, work uh, that you're doing uh, or how you think of that. And um, yeah, so a little bit maybe about, about yourself and, and then uh, mm. as an Anglican studying a Roman Catholic theologian, uh, what that what that means to you and, and where you see hope for uh, further communion. Yeah, well, I, I think de Lubac is a deeply ecumenical theologian um, in many ways by pointing us back to that period of the church's history uh, before the Great Schism, uh, etc. So I think I think de Lubac is is pointing Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants um, back to a shared legacy that we can all draw deeply from. And I think that's something that I've um, always benefited greatly from uh, in my engagement with de Lubac. So I've never seen being a de Lubac scholar as something that is um, in conflict with my own vocation as a, as a priest in, in holy orders in the Anglican church. Um, because I think what, what de Lubac hmm. offers us uh, is something that we share in common um, uh, between us as communions. Um, in terms of my own development and journey, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I went to seminary in my early 20s having no idea what I wanted to do after that. I think uh, I knew I wanted to be involved in, mm. in Christian work and ministry to some degree. I'd been uh, involved in some nonprofit work uh, as a university student that was kind of aimed at connecting young people, uh, uh, helping them see their lives within the great kind of uh, story of salvation. 
Um, but uh, at seminary, I, I fell in love with theology, so the, the kind of study of God and all things in relation to God. Um, but ultimately, I fell in love with the church as well. I was, I was introduced with um, uh, uh, kind of uh, the riches of liturgy uh, and the sacraments uh, through um, uh, an encounter with um, uh, the Anglican Church at that time. Uh, and, and so those two passions, the, the theology and the liturgical and sacramental ministry of the church, have kind of come together in my own sense of calling. Um, so I often say I see kind of my work as a theologian as belonging within um, uh, the Sursum Corda. So that, you know, there's that aspect in, in the Eucharistic liturgy where the priest invites the people to lift up their hearts uh, and the people lift them to God. Mm. Uh, and I think theology is, is one of the means by which um, our hearts are drawn into that kind of that, that lifting, that elevation. And so... Uh, the work of a theologian and the work of a priest, for me, have always been um, closely integrated. Well, I really appreciate your taking this time and sharing. And I think it's just a really wonderful introduction to Delubeck. And maybe just one final question. If people's interests are piqued, as mine certainly is, is there a place for a, a non-expert to start with Delubeck, a mm -hmm. place to, to go uh, to get to know him a bit in a way that would be... Uh, uh, readable for for folks who aren't again um, deeply formed in the theological tradition. Of course, uh, I think De Lubac's work, "The Splendor of the Church," so that's the title in English, is is probably his most readable and approachable book. Uh, a beautiful meditation uh, on the church's vocation, ministry, um, etc. So I would encourage people to pick up that book, "The Splendor of the Church." Um, in terms of the kind of book which really gets you to the heart of his project, um, his first great work, Catholicism, it's, it's hard to beat. I mean, it introduces readers to all the key themes in his work. Um, uh, so his engagement with atheism, his nature grace stuff, his ecclesiology, it's all there in Catholicism. So if splendor of the church whets your appetite, maybe take that next step and, and, and wrestle with Catholicism and, and you will be introduced to uh, kind of this this deep dive into the patristic and medieval literature. Jordan, I'm wrestling with Catholicism every day. That's my life. Um, <laughs> uh, you heard so it here first. Those yeah. of us who like to do that wrestling, uh, yeah, can, uh, can wrestle with this particular volume. Well, uh, Reverend Dr. Jordan Hilbert, Thank you so much again for the, the time and this wonderful introduction and uh, know of our prayers for you from across the pond uh, as you continue in your, your ministry and teaching. Thank you very much. It's been a, a pleasure. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, 
Connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.